0: Loving Lord, we thank you so much for this day, and we thank you so much for your word to us that we can know you. And so we pray that as we open up this passage, may you help us to know you better, see your grace more clearly, and love you more dearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One time in grade three, uh, we had all finished our lunches, and then the bell rang for us to be able to go down to the Oval to play. So naturally, we all ran down the hill to the oval to get to the cricket set first, uh, but a young Michael Calder was put off balance by a nudge in the back. My face came slamming down into a retaining wall that surrounded a tree, and I was in shock. Uh, I thought that I was in okay. I thought that I just needed a little hug from Mum. uh, But I was sent to the nurse's office, and there I saw myself in the mirror for the first time. It was then that I'd realised that I'd split open my top lip and my once white school uniform was now stained with red. I didn't realise how bad the situation was until I looked in the mirror. Well, Isaiah chapter 1 and the book of Isaiah as a whole is kind of like God holding up a mirror to the people of Israel. He wants them to know just how far they have departed from his ways and his will for them. But also, he lovingly wants them to know that they can return to him. That he will fix them up and restore them through the Messiah. If only they would turn back to him and believe in him. So before we get started, let's just get orientated here. Where where are we in history? Uh, Well, we're probably around 730 BC, and we're a few hundred years after the glory days of King David in Israel. But in between those years, between David and 730, things have gone downhill for the nation. The nation has been split into two, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And while some kings ruled in the ways of the Lord, the vast majority rejected the ways of the Lord and then led the people to worship other gods, which led to them oppressing the vulnerable and neglecting the orphans and the widows. Some even killed the prophets of the Lord. The nation is in a tattered state. The glorious promised land is no longer that glorious. The land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey and peace instead is now flowing with injustice, cruelty and violence. And this is heartbreaking. God's people are far from him. God's people had forgotten him. But the brilliant news is that God hadn't forgotten his people. God is still faithful to his covenant promises to his people. And so God sent the prophets to beckon his children to come back to him, to get them to look themselves in the mirror. But their words will unfortunately fall on mostly deaf ears. As we'll see in chapter 1, the diagnosis of the spiritual state of Israel is not a positive one. Even their acts of worship are repulsive to God because their hearts were far from him. But God's heart was still with his people. So let's get stuck in. Uh, The first verses here calls on the heavens and the earth to witness what the Lord has to say to his people. So heavens and earth come and hear from the one who knows all things, the one who sees all things, the one who threw stars into motion, the one who loves his people with an everlasting love. And what does he have to say about his people? Well, what he has to say is heartbreaking. Uh, Look at me from chapter 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand." Woe to a sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. God's people have forgotten about him, forsaken him. And remember, these are God's special chosen people, his beloved children (laughs) he brought them up out of of a nomadic family out of nothing he rescued them from oppression in slavery in Egypt he practically hand fed them every day for 40 years in the wilderness he brought them into the promised land for them to enjoy his kingdom even when they rebelled during that time he made ways to come back to him he saved his people to be his people with a purpose to be a light for all the nations, for all the people to come to know that Yahweh is Lord of all. But they have forsaken him, turned their backs against him, forgotten the one who provided for them time and time again, and spurned the one who loved them with an everlasting love. Terrible irony is that animals know who their masters are, don't they? They know who feeds them, who protects them, and who provides for them. You know, why does your dog come at your feet or be whining at the door at about 6pm? Because they know that you are its provider. However, Israel have forgotten and turned their back on the one who provides for them. The dogs are smarter than them. And this isn't God making fun of his people. Let's just make this clear. This is the Lord's lament for his people. As we hear these words, we should be hear, hearing God's heartbreaking. Like a parent whose child departs from them. Why, Israel? Why have you departed from me? Their sin breaks God's heart. Instead of being a city on a hill and a light on a stand for all the nations to see just how great God is, Israel have become no different to the nations. They've become a family or a brood of doers of sinners. Just to name one example, uh, we can read in 2 Kings, chapter 16, that King Ahaz, who was one of the kings around the time of Isaiah, Even sacrificed his son in a pagan ritual and did other detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them. This was the king who was supposed to lead the people in the way of the Lord, no different to the kings of the nations. They worshipped other gods, they forgot about Yahweh, their Lord the Lord Almighty, the Lord of all. And so because of their disobedience, the nation was in tatters. Uh, It was wounded, bloodied, taken advantage of by other nations. The other nations were tearing strips off of them, but they still persisted in forsaking the Lord. The glorious city has been turned into a shack, The mighty people have been turned from a mighty palace into a tool shed in the middle of a paddock. Small, precarious, desperate. But not without hope. Look at me from verse 8. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in the cucumber field, like a sea under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. The Lord has still saved some people. There is still a remnant. He has a plan for them. He loves them, even though they have forsaken him. He hasn't forgotten nor forsaken them. Now, it may be easy at this point to stand back and think, oh, Israel, Poor Israel. There they go again. How foolish of them to forsake the Lord. I'm glad that I'm not like them. But if we're honest, it doesn't take too much of a glance in the spiritual mirror to see that we forsake the Lord too. All too readily. We can forsake his purposes. We can be more worried about what we want to do in the world rather than what he wants us to do in the world. We can prefer our agenda over our lives rather than his agenda for our lives. We can forsake his place and only come to him as a last resort rather than the fountainhead of all life. We can neglect our relationship with him and keep him as an optional side. We can compartmentalize our lives and and not let him be Lord over all of our lives, but just areas of our lives. We can forsake his ways and not take seriously how he wants us to live, but instead preferring our ways to live. And the point of this isn't to drive us into despair. No, not at all. But the point of this is to drive us to the cross. To drive us back to our great, compassionate God with our hearts and throw ourselves again on God's grace and mercy, knowing that He is loving and compassionate, which is the very thing which Israel refused to do. Now, at this point in the chapter, you could probably imagine someone from Israel hearing these words and rebutting Isaiah and saying, Ah, oh, look, mate, that's that's not fair. I mean. Look at all the sacrifices that we're doing. Look at all the incense that we're burning. Look at all our fancy, beautiful worship. That's got to count for something, right? Well, this is what he has to say about this. Look at me from verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings." of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Israel thought that they could treat Yahweh like any other gods, that all they had to do was to tick the box, do the right religious stuff, do all the right things. As long as they had all the outward would show, then it would be all good. But in fact, it wasn't all good. Not at all, because God doesn't desire an outward religious show. God doesn't desire mindless actions. God doesn't desire thoughtless ritual. In fact, all these things are a stench to God. Israel's worship has become a burden to him. They've become an abomination. They've become repugnant to him. Look at me from verse 13. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. when going into a guitar shop and trying out new guitars, there is a universal rule amongst all guitar shops everywhere in the world, and that is no playing stairway to heaven. Yes, shop owners and employees have become so sick and tired of amateur guitarists hacking away at this classic hit again and again that it's forbidden. But for the Lord... He wasn't tired of the quantity of songs or the quantity of the particular sacrifices. This isn't a variety of the spice of life situation. But he was completely sick of the insincerity of worship. He was tired of how fake and disingenuous their worship had become. Because while the worship looks good on the outside, it had all the outward show and bling, The hearts of the people were far from God. It was insincere. It was a sham. It was hypocritical. It was treating God like some sort of cosmic pez dispenser more than the Lord of all creation who loves his people. And yes, yes, according to the law, all these things were prescribed for Israel to do. If you read back in Leviticus, there are countless and continuous sacrifices. But the sacrifices weren't the end goal. Rather, they were the means to the end. All the sacrificial system, the purity laws, the festivals, were supposed to drive God's people's hearts and lives back to God. Not to be mindlessly followed. But this is what Israel were doing. Their hearts were hard. Their guilt was piling up. All whilst claiming to serve God by sacrificing to him. They were living as people who had the outward show, but not the inward devotion of the heart. And God detests this type of service. It's tiresome. Burdensome to the point where he ceases to listen to their many prayers. Religious actions and doing stuff for God is not what God wants of his people. God doesn't desire a mindless outward show. But what does God desire? God desires us. God desires a relationship. Isn't this brilliant news? That he wants us to enjoy a relationship with him, delight in intimacy with him, and then go and tell others about him and serve him in the world. And friends, this means that we are free from mindlessly doing stuff for God. We can be free from trying to please God with our list of good things. We can be free from the burden of struggling to be good enough for God. Because he isn't a God that needs to be served, but a God that desires his people to be in relationship with him and worship him out of love for him. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is who our God is. A relational God who has come to bring us back to himself. There is no other God like him. And because he gave his life up for us, we can have the complete and utter assurance that he is the Lord who forgives The first 15 verses of this chapter have been full of rightful condemnation. And throughout Isaiah, we will see God continuing to condemn his people. It's weighty. It's heavy. And in some ways, we should feel that weight because rejecting the Lord is a very weighty thing to do. But thankfully, God doesn't leave it there. Even though his people's hearts were hardened, even they forsook him, the Lord's heart wasn't hardened towards them. He hadn't forgotten his promises. And so what does he do? Well, he calls on them to come back to him. He beckons them back into his arms. If you look at verse 16, he urges them to stop sinning. Yes, grieve and mourn for the ways in which you have lived against God's ways and then abandon it. Put it away. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Then in verse 17, learn a new way. Seek to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. And then seek new objectives. Don't live for yourself, Israel, or for your own comfort, but seek the Lord. Or to put it simply, God desires for his people to repent, to do a life 180, to turn away from living for themselves and turn towards living for God. Because there is still hope for Israel. There is still a way for them to live with God as king. There is still hope for us. And that is because of God's grace in letting us return to him. And when we do so, he offers a complete fresh start. A clean slate. Total and utter forgiveness. Look at me from verse 16. Verse 18, sorry. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. When God calls on Israel to come settle the matter, this isn't like an intellectual debate or a logical inquiry or like a legal settlement behind closed doors, because Israel just has no basis to argue from Their record of sin is clear and infinitely long. They don't have a leg to stand on. They are destined for judgment, verse 20. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. But in calling his people to come settle the matter, this is our Lord in all his gracious, glorious compassion and mercy offering Israel another chance, an opportunity for reconciliation for a fresh start Isaiah wouldn't have known how this would be possible but we do that 700 years later Jesus was born into this world as one of us grew up and was crucified for our sake he took our sins He took our guilt upon himself and took them to the grave and destroyed them. And then he rose gloriously again, giving us new life. And so because of this, the record of sin can be wiped clean. The bloody stains made white. The relationship that was in tatters restored. Because the Lord was gracious and merciful and abounding in love. And friends, our Lord is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so we too can have this fresh start, this forgiveness. And all we need to do is return to him, repent, ask for forgiveness. And all our sins will be forgiven because of Jesus. Throughout this series, this is what we'll see. That he is the true king. He is the true Messiah. He is the suffering servant who will come to bring us back to himself. So, friend, come to Jesus and settle the matter and experience and know is love and forgiveness. So let's pray and give thanks. Our gracious Lord, how we are so sorry for the times when we have forsaken you, for the times when we have turned our backs against you. For the times when we have preferred religiosity over relationship. But Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have come for us. That you have died for us. That you have made a way for sin to be wiped completely clean. So Heavenly Father, help us to not lose our awe and wonder at your love and mercy. But be refreshed in it day by day that we may love and serve you in this world and to point others to your grace and forgiveness. And so we pray this in your name. Amen.